This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. This is Alan Pierce. I'm a practicing attorney in Salem, Massachusetts with the firm of Pierce, Pierce and Napolitano. And I want to welcome you all back to a, yet another edition of Workers' Comp Matters. Before we begin, uh, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Case Pacer, practice management software dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And we'd also like to thank our sponsor, PI Now. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. We have a return guest to our show, Peter Romanier. Peter is a noted workers' compensation authority. He is a 30-year veteran of the workers' comp system. He's worn many hats. He's been an entrepreneur, a consultant, but he is best known as a writer. He has written on many topics of national interest and along the way, has interviewed over a 1,000 individuals ranging from injured workers to CEOs of large corporations. He lives in the beautiful town of Woodstock, Vermont, and he is Harvard-educated with both his uh, bachelor's and MBA. Peter, welcome once again to uh, Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you very much, Alan. I'm very happy to be here. Today's show, what I'd like to do is focus on the, and it's a pretty broad issue, and that is the adequacy of workers' compensation benefits. Those of you who are familiar with the workers' comp system understand that uh, benefits in general are limited under most workers' compensation plans. They generally fall into three or four broad categories. One is the so-called disability or wage replacement benefits, which can be of total or partial amounts and or temporary or permanent. There's also the component of medical coverage for uh, the costs of medical care and treatment. Those are the two benefit sources that are most commonly accessed by those that are injured. But the other two, and perhaps there are others, but the other two major benefits would be vocational rehabilitation and in many states what's called uh, a scheduled permanency loss of function or a disfigurement benefit. So, Peter, we'd like to talk about the adequacy of benefits. I think those of us who have worked in or observed the workers' comp system around the country for the last I'm going to say 20 or 30 years have seen shifts in benefit adequacy, especially since the National Commission's report finding significant benefit inadequacy in 1972. That's the National Commission on State Workers' Compensation Laws. And then the, uh, I would call the era of enhanced benefits to come up to what the commission recommended as recommended standards. And then beginning probably in the early 90s through the present, there have been curtailment of those benefits and questions have arisen regarding whether or not workers' comp benefits as they exist today in many states are adequate for what they are designed to do. So with that kind of as a broad introduction, I'd ask you to kind of fill us in on how you feel where we are at this point in terms of the adequacy of benefits for injured workers. I have a pretty crude uh, definition for myself of what the principle of adequacy is, and that is that the worker should not incur undue economic burden due to work injury. And as you pointed out, Alan, this is a, could be a very complicated area of, of a study. 
Uh, researchers have done some very dense studies, uh, valuable, but uh, lots of judgment calls went in them. What I decided to do a few years ago was to look at the simplest parts of benefit adequacy, and that is to look at how, when you're on temporary disability, what's the effect of four rules that calculate what you're getting for your workers' comp check. And that is the basic deductible, which is like 67% of average wage, tax-free. The wait period within which you, if you go back to work, you don't get any indemnity benefits. The retrospective period, at which point after you pass that period in disability, you get your wait period money. And then the weekly benefit caps. And I found that... um, I could not find, except very recently, not a single state that has looked at how their rules have impacted the take-home pay of the worker. In other words, Mary Smith has a take-home pay uh, of, of a week of, let's say, um, of $450 after taxes, pre-injury, and then has a take-home pay of $350 after taxes, um of course, tax-free and workers' comp. That's a, that's a difference of $100. I don't think I've seen a single study, except very recently I came upon one in Texas. So let's go through pretty quickly what I found. Let's go to the simplest one, would seem to be the simplest one, which is weekly benefit caps. Uh, and that is that the law says nobody's going to receive uh, more than 100%, let's say, of the uh, average weekly wage in the state they will not receive that in workers' comp benefits. One of the things I found is that nobody could explain to me why that benefit cap is there. Uh, A brilliant researcher from British Columbia, Terry Bargo, explained to me why it's there. And the way to describe why it's there today is that the workers' comp system is not meant to be a friend to the hedge fund manager who stumbles going into the Yale Club in, in New York City to have a big lunch. That the workers' comp system is designed for the 90% of us or the 75% of us who do not get uh, huge wage, uh, wages and income. So the benefit cap is there, but it's never been explained, and it's never been explained why it's calculated in the way it is. Let's then go to wait periods. Well, the typical wait period in the country is seven days, seven calendar days. Uh, in other words, you have to be disabled for at least seven calendar days before you start receiving indemnity benefits. Some states have three days. Now, the classic argument for this is moral hazard. In other words, if you give payment on the first day, some people are going to claim an injury when they really didn't have an injury. Okay, so that would mean, though, that a state that has a seven-day wait period as opposed to a three-day wait period, that people are more concerned about the moral hazard, but there are less ethical workers there because they have to be out longer. The whole thing doesn't make any sense. And the whole thing doesn't make any sense today because you don't have any lags in, in uh, information about where your workers are. You get medical care immediately, and you get immediate response from medical care, uh, medical doctors as to whether the person was injured or whether the person uh, should be disabled for a while. The whole wait period, to me, is uh, is a myth uh, as to why it's there. Yeah, we've had uh, experience of that in Massachusetts, which I think has been typical of many states around the country. One doesn't begin to collect an indemnity or a wage replacement check until they've been out of work more than five workdays. 
which oftentimes is seven calendar days. And further, they don't get those five work days back unless they're out of work 21 days or more. So that the way the system is designed here, there's an incentive to stay out to pick up five extra days of benefits or seven extra days of benefits, as opposed to, if, if you look at it another way, if you incentivize a worker to return to work earlier by giving that worker maybe an extra few days of comp, you may be saving money in the long run. So yeah, uh, this whole idea of waiting period sometimes is counterintuitive. I think the other thought behind it is it is an effort of controlling the costs of the system, figuring most injured workers aren't going to go to the poorhouse over three or four or five missed workdays, or they can use accrued vacation or sick leave, which really isn't fair to have the resources available to a worker subsidizing the employer's workers' comp system. But I think that was it. The injured worker doesn't get hurt too much, and you add up all those five days on paid across an employer's experience. It could be tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of dollars. So That's well said. I did an analysis. I, I sort of did a model of uh, across the country, depending on whether you have an injury that is three work days, six work days or 10 work days, and then computed, uh, did all the math and said that on average, uh, there was about a 65% reduction in take-home pay and that hit cost was about $500. In other words, if you think of a short-term injury, the typical short-term injury in which the person goes back to work within or at the 12th of the uh, two-week period, that they are incurring a burden that's the equivalent of a relatively inexpensive washing machine. Yeah, yeah. If you look at it in terms of, of dollars. And yeah. you could argue, Alan, that well, well, you know, everyone should be able to handle that hit. Okay. The problem comes when you get into longer periods when you are on disability for a period of time. I did some modeling of, of what would happen there. The, the basic deductible, the 65%, 70% deductible, uh, whatever it is, basically comes down to a 15% reduction in your take-home pay. You're comparing the 66% tax-free to the net pay after taxes, which would be around 80%. So the shortfall right. is in that that 10 to 15% window where workers work paycheck to paycheck. You did yeah. that very well, yeah. The rule of thumb, rule of thumb is that your take-home pay while you're working is around 80% of what your gross salary is. And at a 67%, it's maybe a little bit more than that. If you have a 67% basic deductible, you're short about 13, 15%. Right. Now, the the problem comes when uh, you look at whether people can afford that kind of hit. Now, I would ask your listeners now to judge whether they could sustain, easily sustain, a 15% hit on their take-home income for an uncertain amount of time. It could be a month. It could be six months. Okay. It isn't simply one-time hit. It can go on for several months. Now you can say, well, Ruminier, that's not the right way to calculate because most people have a partner and you have to take into account the fact that the partner's own income is not being interrupted. So it's really not a 15% reduction in income so much as maybe like an 8 or 9%, 8% reduction in income for the, if you group both wages together. Well, when I did this, I took a median income uh, of, in each state, which right now it's about $37,000 per worker. And I had a couple, both of whom had the median income, and they lived 
in the largest city in the state, and I had basic a basic budget for that state. And I found that if one of those workers was on temporary total disability, that couple could not afford the basic budget in that city, could not afford it, the basic budget. We're going to take a break. We're going to pick up on that when we come right back. But after the short break, we will resume our conversation with Peter Romanier. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, Case Pacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see Case Pacer in action, contact us today at casepacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. All right, welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters, where we are discussing with Peter Romanier benefit adequacy. Peter was just talking about uh, studies where the impact on an injured worker and family, the longer somebody is on workers' comp, getting less per week, whether it's combined with a spouse or not, is hard to be sustained. There's one point I wanted to make as you were giving those statistics, and I am going to ask you where our listeners might be able to read your article or articles on this, but don't forget, in addition to getting 66% or 60%, even though it's tax-free, injured workers oftentimes, if they are contributing to their health insurance, still have to have those contributions made. Or they might lose their health insurance. They're also oftentimes not contributing for other fringe benefits while they're out. So that while some might look at, well, you're getting two-thirds of your pay tax-free, it isn't that big an impact when you have to factor in the fact that these people are living paycheck to paycheck initially and just dealing with, as you say, a 13 to 15 or uh, percent loss uh, makes it very difficult. So, you know, where you have studied this and others, where could somebody who wanted to access more information and, and look at the actual figures, they're very difficult to discuss in a podcast, where could they find that? Sure. The study I did, which was published by WorkCom Central in early 2016, is called The Uncompensated Worker. So if you Google The Uncompensated Worker, you will probably find the report in PDF form, which is free and you can collect it. That should be easy to get. I'll give you my email address too right now, which is PFR at my last name, which is R-O-U-S-M-A-N-I-E-R-E.com. And I invite people to look at that study, try to do it, challenge it, see if you come up with more interesting figures. 
this is a very unexplored area. And Alan, I'm awfully glad you brought up this issue of these, these other benefits, that, uh, the other payments, deductibles, and if you don't pay them, you are disallowed. It causes all kinds of grief. Uh, there's no systematic information on this available. And if a number of attorneys could sit down and systematically collect uh, that information on a random sample of their clients over the last five years or so, and we had a good, fair representation of several hundred or up to a thousand cases uh, in which we understand all the deductibles that were uh, being taken out and the consequences of not paying those deductibles, we will have a much clearer picture of this. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Before we close, and I want to thank you for that, and I have read your uncompensated worker piece as well as most, or maybe as much of Peter Romanier's writings that I can, that I uh, have crossed my desk. I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier, and that is you sort of likened it to the hedge fund manager going to the Yale club, but I would call it the higher end, uh, higher paid worker. It doesn't have to be, you know, a, uh, a seven figure a year hedge fund manager. It could be somebody whose average weekly wage is over the state average weekly wage or over the cap in most states. Massachusetts, our maximum an injured worker can collect is the state average wage, which right now is hovering around $1,200 a week. So that somebody who makes $1,000 a week, they get hurt, they get 60% or 600 a week. But somebody who makes $3,000 a week, which is not unheard of, $140,000 or $150,000 a year, they get 60%, but 60% of 3,000 is 1,800. Our cap is 1,200, so that that worker is perhaps only getting 40% or 30% of his pre-injury wage. And that's a worker who probably, while it's obviously nice to have that level of income, also has a lifestyle and level expense, somewhat commensurate with that income. So taking a hit to 60%, is not viable for that worker. He's taken a hit down to 35 or 40% of his income. So, you know, I, I wanted you to perhaps, you know, you can call it a deductible, you could call it a cap, but it is the reality for higher wage earners, correct? Um, you know, I wonder how often that takes place. I had some discussions with the Workers' Comp Research Institute, which had done a study of caps, and we were comparing the frequency in which a cap was hit, I think in the state of New Jersey, for example, and we came up with different estimates, and I'd be very interested in how often caps are hit. And also, who are they? Are these plumbers who are working triple time, you know, yeah. and, and making one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year? Yeah. yeah, for the most part, I've got a lot of union workers here with overtime. They have an average wage of yearly, you know, well over a hundred thousand dollars. Yet, if they have an, an injury on the job and they're capped at sixty percent of their wage, but to a cap. Their right. actual earnings uh, on workers' comp are their percentage. And we do not want to discourage those workers. Those are good workers, right? Right, right. I mean, not that any worker is a bad worker. Those are particularly good workers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to think we're, in terms we're of all good workers out there. Exactly. Peter, once again, I want to thank you for being a guest on Workers' Comp Matters. You've given us your contact information and uh, keep up the good work and keep us, those of us who are attorneys, informed because we need it. We're not skilled in in data collection and analytics and statistics, but they are eye-opening, and uh, especially when you're able to put it in the context that we can all understand. So for those of you listening, thank you for listening and go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network. 
hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other workers' comp matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.